Well, right from the text, we've entitled this morning's message, Rivers of Living Water. And I want to begin by saying what a privileged people we are. We really are to be able at this time of the year, coming off Thanksgiving, and I trust that you have had a blessed Thanksgiving with families that you've been able to be with. And if you weren't able to be with family members, uh, just to reflect, we're so grateful in this country for the things that God has done, even for our freedom and so forth. And one of the things that I thought about, and by the way, we had a great service on Wednesday night. It was wonderful to hear the testimonies and what God is doing in lives. We had to stop. We could have continued on. There were other people we didn't get to. By the way, don't be afraid to give your testimonies in the days to come. And uh, we look forward to tonight's baptism and hearing what God's doing in other, in other lives. So it's a, a privilege. But one of the things I thought about during Thanksgiving might sound strange to you, uh, but uh, just allow me 30 seconds here, is it must be really discouraging to live in this country and be an atheist or an agnostic. What do you thank? And who do you thank people? Who do you thank? You don't believe that there's God, and you don't believe that there could be. You know, there could be, but you don't know. How grateful can you really be? Who do you turn to for the blessings that you receive and the, the world that you live in and just the beauty and the warmth of the day and how sad it must be? So just a reminder, believers, we have so much to be thankful for and to be grateful for. And uh, it's appropriate because, as you know, if you've been with us, we're in the Feast of Tabernacles here. Feast of Booths, and it's their time of Thanksgiving, and it just happens to be here in the text. One of the other things I find fascinating as we get prepared to get into the text is I, in preparing the lesson, contemplated a little bit how Jesus used everyday circumstances, situations, and needs to teach deep spiritual truths. It was amazing, fascinating that he took simple things that we relate to every day to teach, as he's going to do in this text, tremendously deep spiritual truths that he wants to get across to people. For example, we've already seen in John here how he's used bread. Remember, he fed the 5,000, and he referred to himself as the bread of life, something that we need for sustenance all the time. And Jesus used bread so people could relate to it. In Scripture, just some other examples. He uses sparrows in Matthew to show us how he cares for sparrows, how much more he cares for us. So to demonstrate the care of God, he uses such things as sparrows, lilies of the field, lilies of the valley, simple flowers, to talk about God's provision, care, and beauty, simple things like that that are all around us. How he uses in Scripture gates and doors to talk about salvation and entrance to God, entrance to heaven. He even uses the sky and uses things that we relate to. Weathermen must like this, a meteorologist. How he says, isn't it interesting how you can discern the color of the sky and what it's like in the morning and evening, but you can't discern the things of God. He uses, again, things that we can relate to. He uses clay and pottery, a reminder to Christians, a reminder how he is the one that is in control of the clay and is molding us through the circumstances of life. It's an interesting things that we can relate to. We've seen the working of clay and so forth and pottery, and pottery's in our house in one way, shape, or form. He uses those things. Light and darkness, here we are in the middle of the day to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we come to another one. We come to a situation in which he will use water, again, something that we need every day, something that we need to drink in order to satisfy. In fact, uh, not a pleasant thought, but we're made up mostly of, of water 
in our in our uh, bodies and so forth in our physical structure. I guess really, if you want to go back to Genesis, we're made up of water and dust and, and so forth. But God uses it because, again, he can teach us some spiritual truths in the depth. Well, in case you forgot, we're in the middle. We have been in the middle of the, the long feast. You recall that the Lord Jesus Christ stood up in the middle of the feast. Uh, thereby, since it was a longer feast, a, a week-long feast anyway, the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jesus has been teaching actually before the feast, but continued to do so in the feast. He taught them who he was and where he had come from, that he is the Messiah, that he had come from the Father in heaven. And he had also exposed, you'll recall, the plot of the leadership particularly to want to kill him. And the leadership had tried to seize him as we left off last time. Look at verse 32 just to highlight it. And uh, you'll see that they sent officers to seize him at the end of verse 32. And then the people in verse 30 had also tried to seize him. As we've looked at the various divisions of groups that were there in Israel at the time of this this feast. But they had tried to seize him. They had tried to arrest him. They had tried to take him. They had tried to, if you will, apprehend him. But they were unsuccessful. Why? We saw last week they could not do it primarily because according to verse 30, his time had not yet come. His hour had not yet come, referring to the cross of Calvary. This is six months away. It was not his time yet to be killed or to be apprehended by them. That would come in the Garden of Gethsemane. But at this time, it wasn't God's timing. And again, a word for God's protection. Everything happens according according to God's plan. Also, many had believed on him. That was the practical side, verse 31 that many of the multitude had believed. So that put pressure on both the leadership and those who wanted to seize him because there would be people resisting that to take place. Well, days have now gone by between verse 36 where we left off and verse 37. In our Bibles, we have the convenience of moving from one verse to the next and right on we go. But obviously, he had been standing up in the middle of the feast And he had been teaching them. That was verse 14, by the way. I never referred to the verse this morning. And now you come down to verse 36, and it ended off with the conversation. They didn't take him. And several days have gone by. And how do we know that? Because of the timing, we come to verse 37, and it says, now on the last day. I find it interesting. They're trying to seize him. They're trying to kill him. Jesus hasn't run. He's still teaching. He's still among them. He's still ministering. He's still trusting. And again, even there can be a practical application to us. You can have pressure at work. You can have pressure from your neighbors. You can have pressure in the family. You can have pressure on the mission field. You can have pressure in a local church whereby things happen that put pressure on you and you want to run away from it. You want to get away from it. Why? God's protection is still there. God is still watching over us in a practical way, though he had a specific ministry for Christ. And he just kept on doing what he was supposed to be doing, the Father's will. And we are to keep on keeping on. We are to keep doing that. We are not to restrict ourselves because of pressure from the outside. So God is now going to use this circumstance in the life of Jesus Christ and this celebration as he continues to expose their need and to expose again who he is and to also give them warning, as we saw last time. And what is that? Well, the need comes up right away 
in verse 37, but let's deal with the day first. Verse 37 now where we pick it up. On the last day, the great day of the feast. Let's address this first and put it into historical context first so we don't take it for granted. According to Leviticus chapter 23, which we've already looked at, at verses 33 through 36, in that passage, this feast of booths, so this feast, feast of ingathering, this feast of tabernacles was to go on for seven days. And then at the end of the seventh day, they were also to observe an eighth day. And it was the Sabbath day, and they would basically rest. And so technically, while it's a week-long celebration, there are eight days involved. Why say that? Because when we come to verse 7, just so you can be historically accurate, we're not sure what he means here, uh, totally sure, because he doesn't say whether it was the last day meaning the seventh or the last day meaning the eighth. And in case you're, you doubt that, you check Leviticus out and what I said, and you'll see it refers to both the seventh and the eighth day. But he says it's on the last day of the great feast. And while we're not sure, whatever it is, because he says the last day, the great day of the feast, or the great occasion of the feast, he's referring to the climax. That would, in my mind, uh, show me that the importance would be the seventh day, because even on the eighth day, after the celebration, there would be rest. It's kind of, to try to get it into our thinking today, it's kind of like the day after Thanksgiving, well, not anymore. Day after Thanksgiving today is called Black Friday or whatever because uh, I want to be kind. A number of people get up early in the morning to get all their sales and so forth and go out shopping and, and so forth rather than rest in bed. I don't know. If you enjoy doing that, that's, I guess, okay. But Or maybe I should get away from Thanksgiving and we think of Christmas. Day after thanks, uh, a day after Christmas, after people have been over and visiting, and everybody collapses the next day. You just want a day of rest. Maybe a wedding. How am I going to get to relate to you guys? Maybe it's a wedding, and after everything's happened, and the bride and groom go away, then the mother-in-law and the mother at least collapse the next day, and they're glad it's over. Okay, but the the day of the occasion is kind of the height, and that's kind of what we're dealing with here. And traditionally, it was very important. Because while we don't see it historically here, that last day, which I think personally, my opinion would be that it was the seventh. It was not that day of rest to recuperate afterwards, but it was the great day, the highlight of the feast. I think it's probably that. Uh, but what was going on? Well, there were a lot of traditional ceremonies that were going on, and I think it's important for you to hear this because once you hear the historical background, I think it will open up the passage to you. This was not mandated in Scripture. Just like with us, there's a lot of things we do that are not required, but they become traditions and they become habits. And Carson, I think of all the ones that I read, tied in with the traditions that I was able to read the easiest. And not only the easiest, but probably the most accurate from what I could tell. And let me give you a couple of highlights which took place. Each day during the feast, the high priest, now again envision this, the high priest would carry water. And he would do this by going down to the pool of Siloam. Now, for some of you, that may ring a bell, because if you've been over to Israel, at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel, which some of you have gone through, I've gone through it, you go through Hezekiah's tunnel, and then you come out into a pool. Well, back in the Lord's day, that pool was very significant. Whether or not that's the exact pool and so forth, the tunnel is, and there's debate on the accuracy of the pool itself, but nevertheless, it was a pool. And the high priest would go down, and he would gather up water 
from that, and he would take it up to the temple. And on the last day of the feast, what would happen on the highlight of the celebration, not the Sabbath day of rest, the eighth day, but the seventh day, there would be a blast, three blasts of the shofar. Now, for those of you that are familiar with Ken, he's ministered here, it would be the trumpets, that would be our English thinking, but to them it would be a ram's horn. And they would blow that shofar three times to call the attention of the people that this is the climax. This is the highlight of the ceremony. And then they would recite as a people. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 12? Isaiah chapter 12. And the rabbis continued to carry this on. So if you can envision this, it's the last day of the feast. Jesus is about to stand up and say something. He's been in their midst. They have heard him teach. They've tried to tease him. They can't do it. They want to kill him. They can't succeed. He's been teaching them to who he is, and they carry on the celebration. Now it's at its height. Jesus is still there. The high priest has drawn the water. The shofar has been blown, and the people as a whole recite Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now follow along as I read it. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O God, for although thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou dost comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Watch verse 3. Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs or the rivers of salvation. Now on the last day of the feast, if you look back on historical records or you trust, uh, trace Jewish tradition, the high priest came up, drew this water to them, brought it to the temple. In the temple, the shofar has been blown three times. He's got it, and the people start by reciting what you and I just read. And it's talking about God's forgiveness and how grateful they are and the concept of rivers, of waters of salvation. And it's not done yet. The choir then, and the choir meaning those who had been selected and were involved, would then sing Psalms 113 through 118. Now, I'm not going to read that tonight, this morning. You can look at that. Those are called the Hillel areas, they're Psalms. And they would, uh, they would sing those Psalms, all praising God for the way he had protected them and the way he had done things. And then the priest, on the last day, would do this. Two more things to give you. There's a lot of other things, but I tried to pull out the highlights. The priest would then march around the altar. This may recall something to you. He would do it seven times because it was the last day. And he would go around the altar seven times. Does that sound familiar to you? Marching around walls and walls coming down. Ring a bell? Okay. Well, he would come to the temple now, drawing this water from that pool, and he would march around the, the altar seven times. Then he would take the water and he would pour it out as a sacrifice to God. Why? Primarily for two reasons. One, as we have just even read in Exodus what had happened, and I couldn't give you both for them for the responsive reading, to remind the people that it was God that supplied, first of all, their physical need for thirst. It was God that had provided the water. Remember how we looked at the manna? 
how we saw the bread after he fed the 5,000. And Jesus said that bread didn't come down to you from just heaven. It came from God. God provided the bread, not just the clouds, not just it didn't just appear. That was my father that provided that. He is the one, and I am the bread of life. Well, now with the water, he reminds them that you drank, yes, physically, but it was God that provided, and that was part of the provision of Isaiah chapter 12. There was a second reason. And the second reason for pouring it out in the sacrifice was to remind them of such passages as Jeremiah and Joel. What was that? Ties right into verse 39, as we'll see in a moment. It was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and that's how he was referred to. The water had reference to the Holy Spirit and his pouring out God's abundance into their life and how God the Holy Spirit would not only, would God provide physically, but through the Holy Spirit provide for their spiritual needs and even salvation and then work through them as a people when in the last days. So it was a, this total feast as it came to a climax not only reminded them of the housing, that's why they had those boots that we've already seen, not only of the bread, the manna coming from God, but now to remind them of also God's provision of water in supplying their physical needs, but more importantly, their spiritual needs. And now with that little bit of background historically, watch what happens. Verse 37, in the midst of the last day, the great day, Notice this, first of all, Jesus stands up. Everybody else would have been sitting down as you look at the, the way they handle things, even the rabbis. They're sitting down, and here Jesus, who stood up in the middle of the feast, now stands up at the end. Shofar's been blown. The people look to God for salvation and the waters of salvation. The people are singing hymns of praise for thanksgiving, and the priest has just marched around the altar and poured out the sacrifice. And Jesus stands up, and what does he do? The same thing he did in verse 28. He cries out. Now, this was not tears. It was an emotional thing. Don't think that Jesus didn't have emotions. He did weep. He did care. He did feel compassion. He does for you. But he's about to make another announcement to them. That's the idea of crying out. It was like we don't see it anymore. Hear ye, hear ye. Uh, way back when, for... Should I include me in this for some of us? When people sold newspapers and get your paper and so forth, now we're doing away with papers. They're going on the Internet. But, okay, they would sell papers that way and then announce it. They had something to announce. Hear ye, hear ye, and so forth. That's what Jesus is doing. And what does he say? Watch. If any man is thirsty, there's the first appeal to the need. Thirsty. Do you recall last week's responsive reading? In case you don't, I will read it to you. You don't need to turn there. Isaiah 55, verse 1. This was last week. Listen. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It was the Lord's appeal even through the prophet Isaiah to the people of God, if you're thirsty, come. I'll get to the come in a second. But thirsty, there's a need there. Man, we know, has a physical thirst. Sure he does. Remember the woman at the well? Go back with me to John 4 since we're in John. Let us remember this. 
John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Remember, as he's carrying on conversation, let me go back to verse 13, and what do you see there? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, the physical. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then as I had reference when we studied this passage, over to the one we're studying now, it also involves the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about in a moment. But remember the woman at the well? She was there to draw water. The Lord says, you can draw all the water you want. That'll satisfy the physical. But you have a deeper need. Jesus knew that. In all men, you'll notice, by the way, there's no way of cutting it any other way. It's a universal, unrestricted invitation. So what he says, in verse 37 of our text, if any man thirsts, he doesn't limit it at all. If any man thirsts, and then in this appeal, it's an unrestricted one, not to the physical hunger, but to the deep spiritual need that every single soul of mankind has, whether he knows it or not. You know, men and women are searching for all kinds of things today. Let me just pause on this for a minute. Because of the situations. You know, think about the times that we're living in right now. There are a lot of people that are suffering things in the family. Job losses. We know that that's pretty high right now. The economy is making people worry. And these are physical things, I know. But it's caused us in the inner man to wonder where things are going. We're concerned about our government. And it's really true, by the way, that even sport teams affect our emotions and our discouragement and whether they win or they lose and so forth. It's amazing how we are affected by the circumstances of life. And where do we find that contentment? Where do we look? Some people pursue money. Some people pursue careers or bigger or better, by the way. That's what you've been seeing even during this time. My wife saw it and shared a little bit with me. You go uh, out on Friday and you get involved in that crowd at all or you end up you have to go somewhere and you can't get away from the traffic and so forth. And you see people that are buying TVs that are bigger and bigger and bigger and they got to be this wide and that wide so we feel like we're right in there and so forth, I guess, or whatever. Or bigger this or better that. That's never going to satisfy. That's never going to satisfy. And by the way, if you're going through a struggle as a Christian for a moment and, and there's things in your family or on the job and you're concerned about the economy, you know where you're going to find contentment? Only one place, in your relationship with God. Turn with me to two passages for just a moment, and then we'll come back here. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Why dealing with this? Because the worst person's satisfaction in the soul comes from the same place. Let me first of all approach Christians. Christians? Yes. Let me pick it up in verse 11, chapter 4, Philippians. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned, that's experience, folks. He had to go through some things. 
to be content in whatever, watch this, circumstances I'm in. Doesn't matter. How? Verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity and in any and every circumstance. Believers, can you honestly say that? In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secrets of being filled and going hungry, both in having abundance and in suffering need. And everybody quotes verse 13 so many times. Where is it? I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me, through the one who strengthens me. It's being content in Christ. Go with me to Hebrews 13 for one second. And believers would say, yes. But what's it got to do with our text? We'll see in a moment. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The writer of Hebrews says, let your character be free, watch, go pursuing those things. You see, just like water would satisfy the physical, if that's the extent, it's never going to meet the soul. And while we try to satisfy that, men and women, boys and girls, are thirsting inside. But I'm going to tell you something, so are Christians that I'm addressing. We're thirsting inside for satisfaction. We're thirsting inside to just be settled. Look, look it. Don't go after money. Be content with what you have. Why? Here it is. For he himself said, I will never desert you. Do you believe that? Do you really believe it? Nor will I ever forsake you. And then what are we able to say? Verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? If you haven't caught it, in Philippians 4, my point of emphasis this morning in Hebrews 13 was satisfaction with the person of God. And Christians need to be there. What about unbelievers? Go back with me to John chapter 7. There is a deep spiritual need. If any man thirsts, this is not talking about physical water. It's obvious from verse 39 as he translates it for us and explains it, expounds upon it in verse 38. It's dealing with the inner soul of man. It's dealing with the thirst to know God. It is a present subjunctive that is here. It's an ongoing, continuous need that is there. What's this subjectiveness? Man's condition, I personally believe. If any man thirst, if you thirst to know the true and living God, if you thirst to have the satisfaction of your soul, you can pursue after money, you can pursue after careers, you can pursue after things, you can pursue after whatever you want to pursue after. It will not satisfy your soul. It won't. Once you get more and bigger, there's always something bigger. There's always something more. There's always something newer. You will never get satisfied. The human heart won't get satisfied that way. We have to, the appeal, the invitation that is here requires action. Notice verse 37, there's twofold. He says, if you're thirsting to have your soul satisfied, let him come to me. Not to religion, not to self-effort, not to good works, but come to a person. 
The Lord Jesus Christ says, if you're thirsting, right in the middle of that feast, you're thirsting for satisfaction. Here it was, the water being poured out in thanks to God, in appreciation. And the desire was also for that Holy Spirit to come and for the Messiah to be there. And there is Jesus Christ in their midst. If you're desiring for that, thirsting for that one to come, come to me, he says. I'm the one. No wonder later on he's going to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father by me, but by me. No wonder he's going to say, the gate is broad that leads to destruction, but it's narrow that leads to everlasting life. Why? It's specific. It's narrow. It's one. It's only through Christ. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And he's appealing to the very people who are celebrating God's provision. And he stands in their midst and says, if you're really thirsting in your soul, come to me. It's the first thing. He says, come. By the way, both of these are present imperatives. Come now. The first thing is to come to Christ, but it's not the finish. And I want to mention that because as we've already seen in John, many come to Christ, but they don't drink. And I'll deal with that in just a second. Think of the rich young ruler. He came to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, what must I do to have eternal life? He came to him. And when it came down to where the rubber met met the road with him, and he says, go sell what you have, give to the poor, come follow me, he couldn't do it. He didn't drink. Judas Iscariot came to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, he did? Yeah. He was there ministering with him for three years, had all the benefits. He was there, but he didn't drink. He didn't take it in. He came to him. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, in our text, even when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. They came to Jesus, but in their heart it was to seize him. It was to kill him. They didn't come out of the need to see satisfaction found in him. Today there are people all over. I'm concerned. You hear it from me all the time. I'm concerned because all over the world is not only Christianity being attacked, but there are so many that are professing faith and they're only coming to Jesus because they want physical needs met. They're coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons, not for the satisfaction of their soul, but for what they can get. We need to know why we're coming. We've already seen, even in John, go with me to chapter 6, verse 37 for a second. Remember this? All that the Father, I'm not going to go through that explanation again, but all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one that comes, I want you to catch this, the one that comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And that coming to Jesus is is a needy soul. Why? Realizing that I'm a sinner, that the wages of sin is death. I have nothing to offer God. It's not just getting a physical healing. It's not getting a better home. It's not getting better circumstances. It's a coming to the Lord Jesus Christ humbly with nothing to offer, saying, I'm coming to you because of who you are and what you give. We have all kinds of burdens. That's why you got Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you uh, heavy laden. What's he, what does he say? I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. Where? In the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you've got the second part of it in verse 37. 
If you're thirsting in your soul to know God, if you're thirsting in your soul to know whether there's heaven or hell, you're thirsting in your soul because you've tried a number of things and it just doesn't satisfy. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, but then drink. Appropriate it. Participation is what's involved. Again, present imperative, personal involvement. And I'm not talking about that he's earning salvation. Don't misquote me or misrepresent me. Salvation is not a work of man. It's totally a work of God. But the scriptures undeniably give that open invitation right here. And the ones that come, will the Father be the one drawing? Yes. But you've got to appropriate it. You've got to drink it in. You've got to go to the fountain. It's one thing to walk up to a fountain or to take a glass of water. It's another thing to drink it and take it in. And that's what Jesus Christ is calling for. He's standing in the midst. He's saying in the feast, you're thirsting to know God. You're thirsting to understand, I'm the one. Come to me and drink. Come to me and partake. It's not just knowledge. It's not Bible knowledge. You can have Bible verses and quote them backwards and forwards and upside down. You can read your Bible every day and not be saved. Because it's knowledge. And it's not you. It's not satisfied your soul yet because you're not willing to yield your life to the one that bought you and come and follow him. You need to act on it. It's related to belief. Look at verse 38. He who believes in me, that coming and the drinking, the appropriation is the believing. You need to believe, not just in facts, but in the person of Christ. And he appeals right in the feast to them, right at the height of the feast. That water won't satisfy. That God that provided that now provided the provision in me. You want to give thanks to God? You want to talk about rivers of salvation? I'm here in your midst. Praise God, he's still appealing to the likes of you who haven't, whoever out here hasn't trusted in Christ and letting you know that God's provision that will satisfy your soul is still found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one that believes, he says, as the scripture says, verse 38, dealing with the results in 39, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. His innermost being. He's not just talking about the physical. I found it fascinating. I asked permission to do this, by the way. But I found it fascinating in, in looking at this and so forth. I don't know whether you realize it, but Moramisu, who's in our midst, their name means pouring of water or abundant water. I don't know whether they got the name from here, by the way, or they didn't in their forefathers, but that's what their name means. And that's what Christ is saying. He wants us to have that water poured out in our life. It is Christ that produces it, not us. Let me clarify that from the text here. It is not the believer. Out of his life shall flow rivers of living water. That doesn't mean he produces it. Christ is still the one producing it. And it is not a single quote from Scripture, by the way. It's kind of like in Matthew where it says the Lord Jesus Christ's name would be called Emmanuel. There's several passages that bring it together. If you want them, I'll give you a few. You can look at them on your own. Proverbs 55.1, we already saw. I mean, Isaiah, excuse me. Isaiah 44.3. 
Isaiah 58, 11, for those of you that are taking notes. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, all refer to that. But what he's talking about here is a person that believes will know Christ, and then he talks about verse 39, the Holy Spirit that's going to come into his life. But before I get to verse 39, let me challenge you on this. Two ways. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ if you haven't come, and drink. Believe on him, and as the scripture says, thou shalt be saved. You'll become a believer. You'll become a person that's been forgiven and have eternal life. Fellow believer, notice in verse 38, while we know it's the Spirit of God that he's referring to in verse 39, and I'll, I'll say something more in just a second, but I want you to see this. From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. You're not just called to get a ticket to heaven. I'm not just called as a believer to have eternal life and then go back to the world. Out of our life, Christians, out of our life should be flowing the power of the Spirit of God that is seen and is evidenced. And it should be rivers that are flowing out of our life, not a little fruit here and there. Are we yielding to the Spirit of God? Are we letting God use us the way He wants so that others are seeing in our life, not us, but Christ living in us and flowing out of our lives? Believers, we should be yielded to the Spirit of God so that His life is flowing through us. So that it's evident to people around us, not for show, but because we talk about the love of Christ, because he first loved us, we now love him. The love is shown by obeying his commands. The love is shown by yielding to the Spirit of God, by being filled with the Spirit of God, by him working through our lives. Now in verse 39, before I close out the text, he says this rivers of living waters, he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. This was still a future event. You remember I talked about the fact that as he poured the water, it was God's provision, but it also looked forward to the day in which the Holy Spirit would be poured out. You might not like the term, folks, but this is a dispensational distinctive. Clearly. Clearly. Did it mean that he didn't work in the Old Testament prophets? Of course he did. Remember David in Psalm 51? Did he pray, don't take thy Holy Spirit from me? The Spirit of God came and worked in the Old Testament. Of course he did. Even Psalm 139, which we well know, where will I go and hide from thy spirit? Whether light, darkness, sleeping, gotten up, can't hide. Back in Genesis, the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. The Spirit of God is at a ministry from day one. But he's talking about a different change, or, or, or change, I should say, that will take place. The Holy Spirit today is still convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But you notice he's specific. He's talking about the ones who would believe in him, they would receive the Spirit, for the Spirit was not yet given. What does it mean? Not in the capacity that they would get it after the Lord Jesus Christ, what? Was glorified. When did that take place? After his resurrection 
and after his ascension. That's why in Acts chapter 2, he says, not many days from now, you will receive power from him on high. He was referring to the Spirit of God working in their life. Whose life? Believers. And that he would come in a capacity. John teaches us, we'll see it later, that not only would he be with us, but he would dwell in us in a different way so that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of born-again believers. And Romans makes the distinction, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to him. All believers today don't have to wait for a second blessing. When you've trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, after the Lord ascended and the Holy Spirit was sent to come in that capacity, he comes into the life and he desires to work out of the life. And every single believer today has the indwelling Holy Spirit. That was a different capacity. So if you are, let me start with the saved. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse 39, he interprets it, that what he was talking about, even that living water, was the Spirit of God working in and through the person who had trusted in Christ. How's the river? Would you allow me some application this morning? Is it flowing? Are the rivers dried up? Are they parched? Have you been so caught up with the things of this world, the cares? That's why I went to that passage in Philippians. That's why I went to that passage in Hebrews. Have you been so caught up? Maybe you're busy. Maybe you're the busiest person in the church. Are you doing what Christ wants you to do? Are you just busy? What's going on? Where is the Holy Spirit's power evidence? Is it? I hope it is. I hope you can sit there this morning and say, praise God, I'm yielded, this is the right relationship, and it's just pouring out of my life. But Spirit of God doesn't have to be poked. All he wants us to do is do what cars and drivers don't do today, and that's yield. Yield to the Spirit of God and let him take over. Don't try to run your own life. You say, I'm trying so hard to live as a Christian. That's the problem. You can't. You say, what do you mean I can't? Get out of the way. Yield to the Spirit of God who is in there and watch the rivers flow. Watch that little stream begin to overflow. I can't talk to people. Let the Spirit of God take control. Watch how you begin to witness. I'm having trouble loving my wife. She get up in a bad mood. Yield to the Spirit of God and watch how he works. You don't know what my husband's like. I can't submit to him. Yield to the Spirit of God and watch how it works. I'm having trouble with my children. I can't raise them. i I got to get the answers from society. Try turning to this book and yielding to the Spirit of God and watch what happens. You say, I'm having trouble in work and my boss is down on me and he doesn't treat me fairly. Try doing what it says in Peter and even those people that you're working for who are not just, yield to the Spirit of God and watch what he does in your life. The economy's tough. I just lost my job. Christ hasn't forsaken you. He'll still provide for you. Yield to the Spirit of God and watch what he does. Say, I don't know who I'm going to marry. I'm having struggles. I don't know where I'm going to go to work. I don't know what school I'm going to do young people go to. Yield to the Spirit of God and watch how he begins to work. 
But for those of you who haven't trusted in Christ yet, his real appeal in this passage was to them. His real appearance and appeal was, you're involved in this celebration. Not too many days from now, let me challenge you on this as I close. Not too many days from now, much of the world will be involved. Some of you probably already got decorations up. I'm not shooting that down. But much of the world will be involved in all types of celebration for Christmas. Very, very few will understand God taking on flesh as a babe to come to die for the sin of the world. They were involved in a celebration. The Messiah was in their midst, and they didn't even know it. It had reached its peak. They cried out and sang. They quoted Isaiah 55, and they didn't even know he was there. They wanted to overtake him, and they couldn't. And Jesus still appeals to them and says, If you thirst, come to me and drink. If your soul is thirsting today to know the one true living God, come to the Lord Jesus Christ right there in the pew. Don't wait to the parking lot. Per se, you have a heart attack between here and there. And I'm not wishing it on you. Come and drink. And you will find rest for your souls only in the person of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this feast. I thank you for celebrations that we can enjoy. We just went through a period of time of thanking you for all that you do for us, and now we're even thinking ahead traditionally to reflect on the birth of Christ. Without the Lord Jesus Christ coming, there'd be no hope. There'd be no salvation. And yet you loved us so much you sent your son. Help those who might not know Christ to have their understanding open. Help them to come to him and to drink, to find satisfaction for their souls that no one else can bring. They themselves, religion, relatives, work, money, none of it will satisfy. Only you can satisfy the thirsting soul. Help them to come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for the sin of the world. They might trust in him. They might believe in him, have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Help them come as the repentant tax collector who came and simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Might they trust in him. Father, for believers, I pray you challenge our hearts. Is the Holy Spirit having his way in our life? Are the rivers getting dry? doesn't matter how old we are. doesn't matter how young. You sent the Holy Spirit that through our lives might be displayed to the world rivers of living water that evidence the Spirit of God working in our life and through us. And I pray that you'd help us to yield. What has bogged us down? Our own sin? Our own contentment with going nowhere? our own activities of busyness, whatever it might be, that's replaced our yielding to the Spirit of God. Father, bring conviction. Help us to settle it, to yield to the Spirit of God, 
that you might have your will and your way in our life, that others might see Christ and be drawn to the gospel of Jesus Christ through us, through what you've done. We ask these things in Christ's name.